Welcome back to Regenerate with Dr. Sarah Coxon. I just want to say a big heartfelt thank you for tuning in and supporting this creative project. I'm incredibly grateful that the first episode, Witchcraft and Capitalism, was so well received. Thank you so much for all your supportive and appreciative messages that you've sent me since it went live. And also, thank you so much for sharing it with your friends and sharing it on social media. How many ears this podcast reaches is completely down to you guys. So thank you so much for helping this creative project take flight. Before I introduce today's episode, I'd like to let you know that if you want to train with me and learn exactly how to help people transform pain and challenge into healing, growth, purpose, and greater resilience, registration for the Regenerative Alchemy Somatic Coach Training is currently open. This is a paradigm-shifting, foundation, somatic, nervous system-led, and nature-inspired professional training and embodiment program for therapists, coaches, counselors, healers, yoga teachers, and teachers who want to learn how to facilitate safer, simple, and deeply effective personal and collective transformation in these globally challenging times. At the time of recording, we have just a small handful of spots left to claim for January's cohort. To find out more, pause this episode and head on over to drsarahcoxon.com forward slash coach training The link is also in the show notes. You'll find all the information there. I'll see you over there. This episode, the second episode of the Regenerate podcast, is a very different episode to what I had originally planned to create. And that's because during October 2023, the world's gaze was turned to the Middle East as things once again flared up in the region. Words do not do justice to just how horrific and messed up the situation is. And the choice to explore the topics I do in this episode is, in some ways, an indirect response. But I'm not here to share geopolitical commentary. To do so would perhaps be unethical and maybe even harmful, actually, because this is not my area of expertise. My background training as an archaeologist and my role now as a somatic practitioner afford me the ability to instead tease out broader themes and speak to patterns as they relate to the human experience. And that's what I attempt to do in this episode. My hope is that it creates understanding, ignites compassion and gives some much needed hope in these challenging times. So without further ado, You're listening to Regenerate with Dr. Sarah Coxon, and this is War, Masculinity, and Somatic Embodiment. Welcome to Regenerate, a podcast that explores healing and intentional change through the lens of somatics and principles of regeneration. This is a podcast where witchy magic, collective medicine, nature's intelligence, and political discourse weave together. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Coxon. I'm an archaeologist turned author, researcher, somatic nervous system priestess, and somatics teacher, devoted to the path of collective reclamation and regeneration. My intention with this podcast is to educate and inspire you to live in greater coherence with what matters most to you. Regeneration. The process of healing, renewal, and restoration. The weaving ourselves back into nature's great web. The coming home to what matters most. 
Let's dive in. A few weeks ago, I couldn't sleep. Not only did the dog have diarrhea and needed to be let out at least a million times, imagine both of us bracing ourselves against apocalyptic style winds as he did his business amongst my vegetables, I might add, and you get the picture. But in between his explosive bouts, I found myself lying there in the darkness, worrying about the state of the world in the wake of the atrocities happening in the Middle East. Counting sheep didn't help, nor did deep breathing. The only relief I found was when dawn finally arrived and I could get out of bed, make a cup of tea, and write. What I am sharing in this episode is based on the themes I touched upon in my writing that morning, and also some subsequent reading and discussion I've done since then. I'm not recording this to condemn or to condone, or to take sides, and this episode is not exclusively about what's going on in Palestine and Israel and Gaza anyway. In this episode, we're instead exploring the intersections of violence, war, modern masculinity, and somatic embodiment. It's also an inquiry about what is needed for deep, collective healing to take place. And finally, It's an advocation for our shared humanity, because although there are many different truths floating around, and there's indeed been a bit of an information war happening over the past few years, the truth that I feel most stable and rooted in is the truth that things go wrong for us when the very human needs for love, connection, care, safety, and dignity do not get met. And I'm here, in my very small way, to help change that as best I can with the understanding and tools that I have. War. Have you ever stopped to ask the question, what actually is war? You might say it's conflict between two opposing sides, but it isn't just conflict. It's armed violence and conflict. It can be geographical or ideological, and it involves the strategic use of weapons to deliberately kill. And there's something about that that is and should be completely horrifying. When opposing sides go to war, to me, it's almost like a switch gets flipped and a veil goes down. It reminds me very much of the experience I had with a romantic relationship that turned physically violent. I feared for my life. In those frightening moments when he was choking me and threatening to kill me, something had changed in his eyes. He, the real him, just wasn't hope. Something else had taken over him. An uncontrollable rage fueled by deep, unprocessed pain. And I believe that war is just like this, because both sides can have justifiable grievances that blinker and blind. And there's nothing about war, whether it's a fight of ideology or for territory, that is righteous and humane. And as long as war is seen as the only way to settle disputes, 
there will continue to be devastating human and environmental consequences. And I believe that this is true for all types of war, whether it's war for territory or terrorism. My heart is sore. Tears are rolling down my cheeks. Images I can never unsee, stories I can never unhear. And sometimes I wonder if these tears are mine to shed, but they are, I know that they are. What leads us to dehumanize? What leads us to become so desensitized? What leads people to kill other people and feel justified in their actions? What is wrong with the world? I whisper. Why can we just not all get along somehow? And why am I still seen as naive for not only desiring peace, but believing that with the right conditions, although it may not be easy, it's possible. It has been argued that war is simply a facet of human nature. It's how we are wired, they say. But compelling evidence for this just doesn't exist. I'm a trained archaeologist, so I should know. The human species is 200,000 years old, and we don't have any archaeological evidence of warfare dating back all those years. And surely, if war was truly part of human nature, we'd expect to see some really old evidence for it. But we don't. Now, this of course could be because the evidence for it just didn't survive. That's definitely a possibility. Or maybe it's because warfare is a social invention. Some of the earliest evidence for mass conflict comes from Jebel Sahaba in modern Sudan, and it's comparatively recent, only 13,400 years old. Individuals buried at this prehistoric cemetery seem to have experienced violence and trauma at several points during their lives, suggestive of organized conflict. These were nomadic people, and to find evidence of organized violence within hunter-gatherer societies such as these is fairly rare. The evidence for violence between communities becomes much more commonplace after the emergence of agriculture in the Neolithic period. And incidentally, this is where in many pockets of the world, as I put forward in my book, The Way of the Priestess, we also see the advent of patriarchal social structures. So why did war become quote unquote invented in the first place? And what's the link between patriarchy and war? One suggestion, and it's the suggestion I made in my book, is that it's got something to do with the progression of society in general and the big cultural shifts that happened as a result of increased agriculture and production. Quote, After 1600 BC, society in the Mediterranean went through a huge socio-political shift that marked the beginning of the rise of male dominance and the decline of female power. 
With the blossoming of agricultural practices and the rapid advancements of crafts that we take for granted today, such as metalworking, textiles and pottery, suddenly these societies had more resources available to them. And along with these resources came the desire to secure and protect them. A consequence of this was that in the place of once relatively peaceful agricultural settlements and citadels, huge fortifications were built, which signified the rise in militaristic culture. As the need to scare opponents and win wars increased, Gaia, mother of all the gods, was demoted, and suddenly the Greek pantheon found itself with a male godhead, Zeus, the formidable and fierce wielder of thunderbolts and fire." End quote. So although conflict and the desire to take and protect resources may be a fairly natural human trait, it's about survival after all, war as strategized violence against, dare I say it, innocent people is not. It can therefore be argued that one of the driving forces when it comes to modern conflict, violence and war, could actually be masculinity itself. Not masculinity as a biological determinant, but as a social construct, a set of learned rules of how to behave in society. Essentially, war and terrorism may be fueled by what it is to be masculine in our modern world and how it conditions all of us to behave. What is it to be masculine? When I reflect on the messages I received about masculinity, I think of the traits of dominance, strength, aggression, physical power, and emotional neutrality. That's how I've been conditioned. Judy Y. Chu is the author of the book When Boys Become Boys, and she would agree that although there are many different cultural variations, in general, people living in Western society and also Middle Eastern society, have been conditioned to view masculinity in this way. She goes on further to suggest that masculinity, as defined within a patriarchal society, teaches boys from a very early age to shut down and abandon parts of themselves. She writes, quote, In cultures and societies where sensitivity to emotions and reliance on relationships are stereotypically associated with femininity, we expect girls and women, not boys and men, to be emotional and to place value on relationships. As these cultures and societies also tend to dichotomize masculinity and femininity, boys often learn to conceal their capacity and desire for close, meaningful connections with other people, which may be viewed as undermining masculinity and regarded as a weakness or liability for boys. What Judy is saying here is that in such societies and cultures, young boys are much more likely to be shamed for their authentic desire to express their emotions and experience connection and intimacy with others. Of course, it's not true for every single individual, but on the whole, boys learn that traits such as sensitivity and compassion are feminine and that to display them as a boy is a weakness. In fact, I remember when I was a kid calling myself a tomboy. I wanted to be one of the boys and I was pretty pissed off that I was a girl. So somewhere I had picked up the idea that to be a girl was weak and it was much better to be a boy. Now, of course, I hold a very different nuanced view. 
So Judy's work studying boys in the US definitely mirrors some of my own experiences. But what happens when young boys are given these kinds of messages about what it is to be masculine? They learn that they need to be tough. This becomes a survival strategy to show brute strength or be compliant with brute strength. It feels safer for these boys to be tough, to be mean, and maybe even to be merciless. And if they can't cultivate these qualities in themselves, then they align themselves with those who do display these things. And in doing so, they hide or suppress their true authentic desire for connection and intimacy. And then these boys become men. And some of these men become leaders of terrorist organizations, of governments, of the military. And what can happen then? I think we know. I think we've been seeing it play out on the world stage for centuries. And on a planet where it's still predominantly men calling the shots, especially when it comes to terrorism and war, this conditioning inevitably leads to violent and devastating consequences. And it's not natural. Far from it. Carol Gilligan, feminist psychologist and lecturer, writes, quote, Patriarchal codes of masculine honor and feminine goodness have been culturally sanctioned and socially enforced. They also have been taken as natural, so that breaking these codes appears unnatural, end quote. And what this suggests is that men and women and all genders, in fact, are complicit in the entrenchment of modern masculinity. And we are therefore all responsible, in part, for the repercussions of what happens when those who have been socialized as men are encouraged to suppress their desire for connection and intimacy. Let me explain this further. Whenever we unconsciously, slightly recoil from a weeping man or we tell someone to man up, or we expect our men to be strong and fearless no matter what, or we use the phrase grow some balls, or we tell our sons to be big boys, we are compounding the problem. And we also add to the issue when we, even subtly, even jokingly, push back against anything that doesn't fit the woman-man binary, such as transgenderism. We each play a role. We each hold some responsibility. Because even though we may proclaim otherwise, there may still be these conditioned parts within us that want our men to act like men. Yet we can't have it both ways. Because to be masculine, as defined in today's world, which is to exhibit traits such as dominance, aggression and physical strength, can lead to very dangerous consequences. I don't believe that the phrase toxic masculinity is useful here because it has the potential to further ingrain shame and therefore disconnection, which is at the very root of the issue. Boys and men become tough because, given the socio-cultural milieu and the systems in which they live, they've had to. It's about survival, pure and simple. And nothing demonstrates this more than what plays out on the battlefield. 
In the pan-global, culturally accepted definition of masculinity, there is no room for compassion. And if there is no space for that, not to be dramatic, I believe that the survival of the species teeters on an edge. Because if we don't treat each other and the environment with love and care, we won't survive. I believe that it's clear that we need more women at the table, making hard decisions but from the heart. That's undeniable. But I also believe that we need to collectively redefine masculinity so that all people, no matter their gender, can reclaim the very human qualities of compassion, tolerance, discernment, love and understanding and come back to the authentic heart of humanity. Sometimes I feel like the world is just a massive dick-swinging contest. It's almost childish, really. And maybe that's the point, that these world leaders are hurt children. And I want to grab them by the shoulders and shake them and yell, look at what you're doing. Are you happy now? Can you truly rejoice with nothing but rubble at your feet? I know, my anger is justified. I know that it's right to see killing as wrong, but it doesn't take me long for my social conditioning to kick in, making me once again feel like a silly little girl whose belief in the goodness of the world belongs only to fantasy and fairy tales. But no, I know in my bones that violence and retribution are wrong. They only serve to perpetuate pain and can never bring us to the repair and resolution that we seek. So how do we resolve conflict without violence? Well, the good news is that although we may not realize it, if we zoom out a little bit, we can see that we are actually living in relatively peaceful times. Overall, we are much less likely to die from war or violent crime than ever before. And of course, this is affected by where we are living, but in general, the world is actually less violent than it was a thousand years ago. Which is good to bear in mind because it helps us to keep things in context, especially when the media is trying to sell us a different narrative. Yet, we still have a long way to go. War and violence are still part of human existence right now, and we still need to focus on how we can better resolve conflict. Modern conflict resolution has historically always been seen as a matter of implementing the right strategy. There are five accepted approaches to conflict, avoidance, acceptance, gradual social reform, non-violent confrontation, or violent confrontation. Non-violent confrontation is the process of solving disputes in a compassionate and open manner. Marshall Rosenberg, an American Jewish psychologist and mediator, developed nonviolent communication, a process for supporting partnership and resolving conflict within people, relationships, and society. He wrote, quote, All criticism, attack, insults and judgments vanish when we focus attention on hearing the feelings and needs behind a message. The more we practice in this way, 
the more we realize the simple truth. Behind all those messages we've allowed ourselves to be intimidated by are just individuals with unmet needs appealing to us to contribute to their well-being. When we receive messages with this awareness, we never feel dehumanized by what others have to say to us. We only feel dehumanized when we get trapped in derogatory images of other people or thoughts of wrongness about ourselves, end quote. Let's talk about nonviolent communication in a little bit more detail. So the process is a four-part sequence of communicating with another. First is observation. So you observe what is happening in the situation without judgment and you express it. So an example could be, when I see you haven't washed the dishes. You can imagine that's been quite the argument in our household. There's no judgment there. It's just a fact that the dishes haven't been washed. The second part of communicating is communicating the feeling. So sharing how we feel without blame. So as an example, you could say, when I see you haven't washed the dishes, I feel unsupported. Again, you're not saying you make me feel, but there is an acknowledgement of feeling. The third part of the sequence is to state the need that is not being met. For example, saying, when I see you haven't washed the dishes, I feel unsupported and I need more help around the house. And then the final part is the request to get that need met. So for example, when I see you haven't washed the dishes, I feel unsupported and I need more help around the house. Would you be willing to take care of the dishes during the weekday? So this process is a backwards and forwards negotiation. And it's not about getting our way all the time, but better understanding each other's feelings and needs and striving to compromise to get as many needs met within a relationship or a community as possible. There is therefore no conflict resolution without empathy and compassion. And in order for there to be resolution, people need to have the capacity to slow down, feel and listen. And this is where somatic embodiment comes in. Because it's not enough to know cognitively that we have to feel our feelings. Our bodies need to feel safe enough to actually do it. And it's not enough to mentally understand that we have to acknowledge the perspectives of others. We need to have the skill of embodied attunement so that we can not just hear their words, but pick up on all the different things that people communicate to us non-verbally. Kai Cheng Tom, an embodied conflict resolution specialist, writes, quote, The first skill of embodied conflict resolution is reading our own body cues, Noticing our movements, behaviours, internal sensations, resourcing abilities and present dissociative behaviours. This kind of reflection allows us to better understand what's happening for us. When we are in touch with ourselves, we can engage differently. And with that comes awareness of the other and what might be happening in their body as well. Awareness of what is happening in someone else's body is a complex skill that requires us to remain aware of what's going on for us while remaining aware of what's going on for them. This way, we can have a sense of why someone might be reacting the way they are and what needs to happen differently in order for us to connect more authentically." End quote. 
Our embodiment, the way we relate to our body and the bodies of others, is therefore a very necessary foundation for effective conflict resolution. I think that central to this, we need to recognize that despite the temptation to do so, the world cannot be simply divided up into perpetrators and victims, oppressors and oppressed. In reality, it's much more nuanced than that. And I would argue, perhaps controversially, that each of us can simultaneously be perpetrator and victim. The idea that as people we can be perpetrators and victims at the same time frees us up somewhat from always trying to claim victim status as a means to gain moral superiority. And in doing so, it kind of levels the playing field so that we are more ready to listen and empathize with the grievances of another. And this is truly why I do the work that I do in the world as a somatic practitioner. Because somatic work, by showing us how to feel, process past hurts, resolve trauma, and attune ourselves to our humanity and the humanity of others, offers us a robust way forward. Of course, it's important to acknowledge that that's not all we need. We need good policy and top-down systemic change too, but building our somatic awareness can help us recognize the familiar pull of reactivity so that we can pause and perhaps hopefully choose another way of being, one that is aligned with who we really are at our core and what we authentically care about. For people who are socialized as men, somatic embodiment offers a route to reclaim long abandoned aspects of themselves, such as softness, and the desire for connection and capacity for intimacy. For people socialized as women, it paves the way for cultivating a greater sense of empowerment and sovereignty. Somatic skills have real world implications and impact. A beautiful example of this in action is the Holy Land Trust, which is a nonprofit Palestinian organization committed to fostering peace, justice, and understanding in the Holy Land. They are, quote, deeply committed to exploring the root causes of violence and seek to develop solutions to address them. We believe that true peace and justice is achieved through non-violent activism, personal and spiritual transformation. We believe in honoring the dignity and equal rights of all peoples, end quote. This is Somatics. So although I often watch world events play out and find myself feeling helpless and small, these days it doesn't take me long to recognize that in very small ways, what I'm doing in the world is being part of the solution somehow. And this is true for all of us when we engage in this kind of work. When we take responsibility for our healing and growth, we are being part of the solution. When we learn how to attune to ourselves, connect to more inner rootedness and from that place emotionally attuned to others without getting sucked into default behavioral patterns that then in the long term take us further away from what we want for ourselves and others, we are being part of the solution. And when we bring these approaches into how we live and work, we become part of the solution. So I guess what I'm saying is I believe that there is hope for humanity but we need to all learn and embody the skills that pave the way for the peace and harmony that we seek. And I'm here for it. 
You've been listening to Regenerate with Dr. Sarah Coxon. Thank you for tuning in. A lot of work goes into each full episode. And the best way to support this project is to share this episode on your socials and with your friends every time you listen. This small act goes a long way in helping the podcast delight new ears so that we can grow our regenerative community of listeners. Thank you for your support and I'll see you next time on Regenerate.